Hello, and welcome to the first episode of The Vast Majority from Jacobin Magazine. I'm Jacobin Managing Editor Micah Utrecht, and I'm sure you're listening to this right now and wondering, first off, why do I need another leftist podcast in my life? And I will admit to you that this is a very fair question, because the leftist podcast market is pretty tight these days. But we are publishing several dozen articles at Jacobin every week online, not to mention new print issues of Jacobin every few months, new issues of our journal Catalyst, new books in our book series. And all of these articles and books have really shaped and reshaped how I think about politics. So I wanted to talk to the authors of those books and articles about their books and articles. And so that's what I'm going to do in this podcast in conversational and fairly short weekly episodes. For the first episode, I'm talking to Jacobin editor and publisher Bhaskar Sankara. Bhaskar wrote a book that just came out, The Socialist Manifesto, The Case for Radical Politics in an Era of Extreme Inequality. And it's a very good book, so I talked to him about it. Bhaskar Sankara, welcome to The Vast Majority. Thank you for having me. So you have this new book that's called The Socialist Manifesto, and it is a socialist manifesto, but you're also kind of underselling it by the title in some ways because it's this kind of compact history of the whole socialist movement in world <laughs> history. Uh, so uh, it inspires one to ask you a kind of big picture question. So what is the state of socialism in 2019 in the United States? Well, actually, my original title for the book was Socialism in Our Time. And I had that title until one day, you know, my editor and these marketing people came up to me, they, you know, the basic books, and they wanted to talk with me. And I was a bit worried. I'm like, well, what's going on? Are they going to, like, take away the book? Oh, God, I already spent this money. <laughs> like, what, what am I going to do? They're like, oh, we want to change the title and the subtitle to The Socialist Manifesto. The Case for Radical Politics and Extreme Inequality. And we know that's a big shift from socialism in our time. So, you know, you take a night to think about it. And I was just like, no, it's fine. <laughs> Normally, authors are defensive about something they spend, you know, a year a year doing. But I'm right, starting off the podcast with care. throwing under yeah. your, your publisher under the bus. No, that's no, good. no. It's a great title. <laughs> no, quite, quite, quite the opposite. This is, uh, you know, this is a title that will move units, you know, not socialism <laughs> our time. I don't know what I was thinking. So, um, so anyway, yeah, it's not really a manifesto. It's more like, um, like you were saying, the, the first chapter is this weird sort of thought experiment of what would socialism look like? Uh, because most books about socialism actually are critiques of capitalism. They're not about socialism. So in that first chapter, I try to explain kind of the Marxist theory of exploitation, then explain uh, what life under social democracy looks like, uh, then what life after social democracy in a socialist society could look like. Then after that, it's mostly history from the, you know, the workers' movement of the 1800s onward of kind of different episodes of, of good moments and bad moments and kind of uh, moments we should feel ambivalent about in the socialist tradition. Uh, then finally, the last third of the book is the actual manifesto part, which is kind of a little bit lighter, but hopefully concise. But the question still is, what is the state of the socialist movement now? I mean, you, you bring the reader through all of this world history and through and through the U.S. history. So uh, big picture, what do what, what's going on with the socialist movement in the United States right now? What are the uh, opportunities, pitfalls, uh, potential pitfalls and sort of where are we going and what, what's lacking? 
Well, we're in the ICU. We're in the intensive care unit, but we've spent a lot of time before in the emergency room and on life support. So we're you know, from the coma. Yeah, things are looking better. You know, we we have a pulse, even though our pulses is, is weak. Uh, you know, when we started Jacobin in in late 2010, you know, when you start getting involved with Jacobin, not too long long after, to be a socialist was was a crazy kind of leap, right? It meant like asking a million questions of why in the world are you a socialist? You know, what do you like? You know, East Germany? Do you like bread lines? Do you like you know, whatever. It was just, it was something really outside of the ordinary. Now it's almost embarrassing to say that you're a socialist because it seems like you're trying to be in, in vogue, which is, you know, it is, it is a thing. But uh, I, I think that in the United States, it is largely an electoral formation in that what the Democratic Socialists of America, for example, have proved really good at is electing people, especially to local office. Uh, then also, uh, it's a media phenomenon. It's gotten tremendous press coverage. And sometimes it's really good causes that are getting press coverage, but that shouldn't let us to overstate kind of where we are in our in our in our struggle, right? Bernie Sanders, the camp, the movement around him is not necessarily a socialist movement. There's it's kind of a vaguely left populist movement around Bernie Sanders, and that's where most people are at. The teacher strikes. You couldn't have had the strike wave we just had without the, you know, as many people put it. Um, the militant minority of, of socialists involved with organizing those efforts. But most of those teachers are not conceiving of their struggle in any sort of socialist terms. So I think we need to be excited. We need to be looking at these things as positive signs. But we need to be humble enough to know that socialists in America, you know, it just we're 60,000 people in a country of 330 million. You mentioned a couple of things there, like the fact that uh, Bernie, what Bernie is running on right now, is uh, not necessarily socialist, or a lot of the most promising developments that are happening are not necessarily socialist. I think some people on the left hear that and then think, yes, that's true. They're not necessarily socialist, so we need to be doing the thing that actually is socialist. But you write in your book about uh, this phenomenon, what you describe as class struggle, social democracy can you explain that a little bit uh first i guess you should explain what is sort of traditional social democracy uh what's wrong with it and why is this phenomenon that you're describing how, how is it uh qualitatively different even though it still shares this name social democracy well traditionally socialists have have done the complete opposite of the personal is political and we've said that politics starts in the hundreds of thousands and in the millions right and where Sanders is, is where there's a class conscious base of millions of people who are following his message, who are, um, you know, getting involved in his campaign, or at least are passively supporting it. And to me, we can't separate the fact that you, you can be an ideological socialist without a mass base, but you can't really do socialist politics without a, a, a mass base. And American working class, to the extent that it is politicized now, it's politicized around this new wave of trade union struggles. It's politicized around the Sanders campaign. It's politicized more generally around opposing Trump and supporting Democrats, of which they're generally favorable. I mean, that's one of the things ever, you know, people like Sanders, but they also like other Democratic candidates. And I, I just say that, say that not in a defeatist way, but just in a kind of, this is our starting point. It's not all bad, but but here's where we're starting it. I use the term class struggle social democracy to try to explain the intuitive thing that makes sense to everyone, which is Sanders is a good thing. We should be supporting him. <laughs> like if it, you know, it's almost like one of those arguments that you shouldn't really have to prove. 
you know, but somebody had to prove that the world was round. Somebody has to, you know, find some sort of theoretical justification to the thing that feels like uh, like common sense. And in this case, uh, my argument is that social democracy in Europe has become something or evolved into something that was based upon class compromise and that took social movement energy and working class energy and it put it into an electoralist uh, kind of form uh, so that you would take the energy of the class and you would try to consolidate that into certain parliamentary victories. Uh, then once you're in power, you're governing a class compromise. So you need to be wary of excessive militancy in the working class or other things that might um, upturn that class compromise. Now, these post-war social democratic leaders weren't bad people, and they managed to institute a lot of important reforms, but this was the logic of social democracy back then. And just for those who aren't familiar with the term social democracy, briefly, what is it? Well, social democracy, well, originally... The classic sense, I guess. Yeah, originally the common ancestor uh, of, of all socialists called themselves social democrats. Marx and Engels, they called themselves social democrats. Then at some point in the um, early 20th century, um, with the emergence of, of World War One was really the culmination of a split, you know, but... But there became a split between, let's say, a, rev a rev social movement of the revolutionary left, you know, a movement of um, Luxembourg and Leibniz and Lenin and Trotsky. They were associated with this left wing of social democracy. And these were the founders of the communist movement. Um, then uh, a right wing of social democracy still said that they wanted to reach uh, socialism. They wanted to go beyond capitalism. But in effect, they just settle for administering capitalism in the interests of workers. And they managed to achieve a lot of gains and make a lot of inroads on the power of capital, but they didn't see the insurrectory route as, as the correct one. And, and ultimately, they ended up just settling for a kind of functional socialism in which they tried to achieve socialist ends, but without truly undermining uh, where capitalists got their power. So in Sweden, um, in the 1960s and 70s, capital is is really on the defensive workers are gaining more and more power they're starting to demand things like industrial democracy and so on but even though the social democracy made the workers movement stronger it also made capital stronger in many ways and it it created conditions which capital at least still had the power i shouldn't say stronger but it still had the power to withhold investment to basically say this class compromise that made sense when we were very weak in the post-war years no longer makes sense. So there were checks on capital's power, but capital ultimately held the kind of trump cards in, in society. Exactly, exactly. And within the social democratic movements, there were attempts to go beyond it, to try to take away capital's ability to withhold investment through socializing firms, through nationalizing finance, uh, financial instruments, uh, things like, uh, like that. Ultimately, they, they fell short. And what was left, the Social Democrats were like, um, or this left wing of social democracy, this attempt by the workers' movement in Sweden, for example, but other efforts too, didn't really go anywhere. So either you are in the center of social democracy and you're just going to put your head in the stand and pretend that conditions haven't changed, that the economy hasn't internationalized, that in fact there isn't a crisis of profitability and so on. Or there was a solution to the right wing of social democracy, which was just simply... Well, we know that there is this crisis, and we know that we don't know exactly how to get out of this crisis, but we do think that capital needs the ability to restructure, and that means allowing some amount of deregulation and some amount of the weakening of the power of unions. 
And in that condition, capital will restore profitability. Uh, then, with this restored profitability, we will tax their profits and we'll maintain the welfare state with the taxation of this profits. So when we think about third-way social democracy, when we think about Schroeder or Gordon Brown or any of these people that we might want to hate at a moralistic level, they were simply answering a dilemma with their solution which came out of the right wing of social democracy. But in effect, they undermined their own social base. So once you do that, once you go down that road, why in the world would, would people vote for you instead of voting for your center-right you know, counterparts? Um, and, and so in, in the end, they under, undermined the, their actual basis of power and continually social democracy slid to the right. And in Europe today, it's associated with the establishment, with austerity, with whatever else. Now, Corbyn and Sanders advocate essentially social democratic demands for an enhancement of the welfare state, but they're not part of this establishment. They're not part of the, this right word drift. Instead, they're an insurgent force from the left saying that if you want to get better things like Medicare for all and so on, you need to do so through class struggle. You need to do it through polarization. You need to hate your enemy, identify your enemy, and, and overcome your enemy. Which is the opposite of what you described the right-wing version of the social democratic strategy, right? Which is to, like, compromise with the enemy. Like, we'll cut a deal here. We'll, we'll do this through sort of, like, governance, especially at the top, right? And we'll, we'll, we'll sell out the... Uh, the uh, interests of, of the social base of the of the working class of Europe. You're, they're doing the opposite. They're they're trying to inject more militancy and, and just more of a sense of, of struggle against capital through social democratic demands. Yeah, we have to think about what was the criticism of let's say the new left criticism of the old social democracy. How those pro- parties operate? Were they bureaucratic? Were they conservatizing? Were they tied to the imperial project and so on? So these new left criticisms of social democracy in the post-war period were correct. Uh, there were some exceptions on the edges, like, you know, Olaf Palma, Sweden, was uh, fought U.S. imperialism in, in Vietnam and supported the fight against apartheid in South Africa and so on. But in general, it was true of the Wilson governments, um, the Wilson labor governments in the U.K. and so on. But that criticism has kind of been solved by the fact that well, what is the criticism? The criticism well, is that they were bureaucratic yeah. and that they they co-opted kind of class struggle, right? Um, and put it towards these narrow means and 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 limited the potential, the revolutionary potential of the working class. And also, just on a kind of uh, abstract level, it's like social democracy looked gray and boring and wasn't about human flourishing and expanding freedom and all of that stuff. Yeah, somewhat. They'll actually think that'd be what they would say about it. Yeah, the new left would say that to some degree that that. Criticism actually dovetails with the criticism of um, Anthony Crosland and the right wing, the kind of proto right wing of social democracy. Crosland, in his really famous book from I think 1956, the the, the future of socialism, actually has that um, you know criticism where you know he said that you know s- social democracy can't just be about this command economy and so on. It has to be about wide open boulevards and you know and people like walking lyrically through them and you know whatever which sounds like like a, a, what neoliberal third way social democrats have actually been good at doing right kind of adding some like bike lanes and shit on our streets you know but um but yeah so i, I think today uh, the common sense thing that people see is sanders is pushing the country to the left he is mobilizing people he's telling them the politics can can do things corbin has radically moved the labor party to the left and Having this concept of class struggle social democracy is a way to 
historicize and situate what's happening but it's really just common fucking sense you, you i mean you, you don't really need to read a book to tell you to tell you that you, you shouldn't say that on a podcast episode where you hopefully want people to purchase your book but don't. No, I'm, uh, what i already got my advance do whatever you want you know put it on like booksies that are you or whatever you know whatever, whatever you want to do with it is fine with me so talk about the you know this isn't really as uh, central part of your book, but uh, a general question that I think is either explicitly or implicitly on the minds of a lot of uh, people these days about the relationship between liberalism and socialism. I think a lot of people, you know, especially people who are radicalized after the Bernie campaign or like they, they saw who are the representatives of liberalism in the 21st century, someone like uh, Hillary Clinton, uh, and they think, uh, well, that is, you know, that's clearly not good enough. Uh, that that, it, that I don't, you know, they wanted Bernie Sanders over uh, the liberal, which was Hillary Clinton. And they started thinking about it. Oh, well, if I didn't like that liberal, well, probably like liberalism has its problems. That's why I'm a socialist, because I, I, I don't like liberalism, because liberalism is not good. It doesn't go far enough. Um, so can you talk about how, what, what's, what's wrong and what's right about that approach to uh, to liberalism as a kind of body of political thought and what the relationship between socialism and liberalism should be. Yeah, it's complicated because it, it, there's two related things that relate to the different definitions of liberalism. You know, the the broad, broad political theory use of liberalism and also what we call liberalism in the United States. Uh, now, I would say as it relates to the broad theory, socialists aren't necessarily anti-liberal but we want to go beyond liberalism. So in other words, a socialist, let's say, looks at India and says, all right, it is good that in India there is a generally free uh, press in India. It's good that people have the right to express themselves and protest and so on. And this was a right that was struggled for and hasn't existed you know, forever um, you know, in India. Um, but we also would say that if 40% of the population is functionally illiterate, is that a real right to those people? Now, our response isn't to say those are fake bourgeois rights and what we want is the real right to eat. You know, um, our response is if we want to actualize that liberal right to a free press, we need to ensure comprehensive access to nutrition, to housing, to education, to all these other prerequisites of human flourishing. So we want to go beyond liberalism, but we don't necessarily reject liberalism. And this goes along with how we view democratic rights. There's no such thing as bourgeois democracy. The bourgeoisie has nothing to do with the emergence of, of democracy. Democracy was fought for by popular struggles from, from below to expand the franchise and expand the bedrock of, of rights. Um, in the United States, we'd still be living in a country with a quite racialized network of literacy tests, if not for popular mobilizations you know, from from below. Now, when it comes to American liberals, I think many of these people are, in fact, social democrats or even democratic socialists who speak in a different idiom, because in America, we don't have the language of the old left. We don't have the language of social democracy, the language of democratic socialists. Not to mention that the Democratic Party has, because we only have these two parties, they are the party through which the social democratic gains that we do have have been won, right? So they, they don't think of you know, people who are Democrats who want to win Medicare for all, or they don't think of being a Democrat as somehow conflicting with 
their desire for Medicare for all. Because, of course, the Democratic Party is where you would go to win those kind of demands. Yeah, you know, brown and black people and, and working class people of all of all um, races and backgrounds vote for the Democratic Party, not because they're dumb or enthralled to class consciousness. They do it because they're smart and they, they know how they have the most to lose by Republican administration. They know how far right the Republican Party um, is. But obviously, it's a social liberal party. There's limits to what it can accomplish. It's also not a membership party that really engages and mobilizes people. I mean, it's hard to explain to people overseas who try to assume that the Democratic Party is a center-left party, like the center-left parties they know. But Hillary Clinton never never called one protest. The Democratic Party doesn't call protest. Can, can you imagine some of the things that are going on? The leading opposition party has not called a single protest. I mean, it just, it's not, it's not, um, they're not membership parties and so on. But, but basically what I was saying is that a, a chunk of these people who call themselves liberals today are, in fact, I think, further to the left. And they have different views than people like Hillary Clinton and Rahm Emanuel and the people who run the Democratic Party. And one of the primary projects of Jack, then one of my projects, has been to try to to divide and separate those two to say, uh, you stand for this, and maybe you won't be with me to fight for an independent working class party today, but you at least know that you stand for something different than Ron Manuel, different than Hillary Clinton. And Bernie Sanders, himself not a Democrat, but he's someone who pushed this polarization. And I think the base of any future left-wing politics is around you know, 30% people who are not politicized, you know, 40% these people who are currently voting for the Democratic um, Party, other than 20% people who might be voting for, for Trump. You know, one in every five Trump voters, I think, can be won over to, to a left-wing, um, you know, political um, vision. Um, so is it fun to attack liberals? Yes, but it depends who. It's, it's fun to attack liberals who you know write for these like terrible you know centrist venues i won't name any of them because i neither helped to promote my book <laughs> but it's fun to although you spent many people. years attacking ezra klein and now he's uh, blurbing your book yeah his podcast. yeah it's it's what the call, kids call <laughs> negging <laughs> so you know it it you know like obviously there's those people uh, and then there's people who work in the Beltway and these like think tank kids and whatever else. And they're worthy of all sorts of humorous vitriol and so on. Though obviously there should be some bounds of civility. But, you know, that's just me talking. Maybe not. Uh, but then the, if you're like attacking like a nurse or a teacher because they're really fervently supportive of Barack Obama, then I think, you know, you probably have an issue um, and multiple issues. Then one of them is that you know, uh, you're not really engaging in, in politics. So I think, obviously, we have to figure out where, because cause on the one hand, we do have to create an identity. And one of the great triumphs the last two years is creating this identity to the left of liberalism. It's called democratic socialist. And part of the identity creation is hating another and creating bonds of solidarity and, and speaking to people's anger and alienation, even if it's just the alienation of a small minority of a couple hundred thousand people. So... I want to fan those flames without it bleeding over into us alienating rank and file people. And I, I don't think that's really happening because, you know, God knows these these media types, liberal media types don't really have a, a mass audience either. You know, we're all speaking to the same, you know, few million people. But the difference is we're in a country of 330 million people. So that's enough for people to make a living writing their BuzzFeed quizzes and shit. You wrote a, 
uh, editorial, and I think uh, issue two of Jacobin uh, that ended with a line that was something like, uh, don't dance on liberalism's grave, there's nothing to celebrate. Uh, the whole editorial was about how socialists do need a, a kind of strong and, and functioning and relevant liberalism as uh, almost like a, a sea to swim in, right? Yeah, that was actually something I, I co-wrote um, in issue three with uh, with Seth uh, Ackerman. And with in that article, essentially, we were you know defending Harrington's vision of of Michael yeah, Harrington, Michael Harrington, the DSA, Democratic Socialist, yeah, DSA's founder's vision that, or at least we disagree with his tactics or his strategy, or at least I do, but he did say that liberalism is kind of a bellwether. Like a lot of these people are in fact going to move to the left. They're capable of moving to the left, and we we're searching for a base to our politics. And this is the tricky thing. All of us involved with Jacobin. You know, myself, I've been a Marxist since I was a teenager. I've been a DSA member since I was 17. It was very, it's very easy to be content with what you have, with your 40,000 subscribers, you know, with your whatever. But if you're serious about politics, you're constantly searching for, for an audience. You're constantly searching for, you know, why, why aren't these ideals being articulated into the world? I think there's new dilemmas. How do we put these ideas into the world without diluting what's actually transformational about them how do we prevent uh someone like aoc or a new crop of self-described democratic social leaders from looking like the old generation of progressive democrats that moved to the uh to the right and this is where it gets tricky again and obviously dsa jacobin myself we're all trying to to uh navigate these dilemmas but these are kind of good problems to to have but that that article was almost like um uh, like a premonition of 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 what was going to come because it was our, you know it's we we're just wishful thinking but we saw no other route for for the change to happen and it is it is finally happening but your point about expanding who is a part of your movement is an important one i think because you know we're at this moment where previously the left uh had very little organizational you know upsurge and now there are as you said 60,000 people in the democratic socialists of america and there are enough people in the DSA for a DSA member to have their whole like social and political world uh, be you know one that is lived among other DSA members. And you can read Jacobin and other left wing publications to get your analysis for what's going on in the world. And you you can it, it, if it, it, you can have a whole life basically within this world that has been created on the left in the United States over just the last couple of years. Uh, but you have to make sure that you're not getting too comfortable living in that world because uh, we're obviously very far from uh, building that kind of uh, mass movement that you know that you see in the history of socialism in Europe, for example, uh, or uh, in Latin America over the course of the 20th century. Like we're we're still very far away from build from from having the kind of movement that we need to build uh, that could win. You know socialist uh where socialists could be pushing for uh radical changes in society on a mass scale yeah harrington used to describe it as kind of a tightrope on the one side is is the world we want to see on the other side is the world as it is and you kind of need to navigate between both both sides uh, because we want to we have to be of the world right we have to be people who are 
normal and relatable and who, you know, are um, like able to speak to people about their daily concerns. So, um, you know, we we need people to be like AOC, you know, and that obviously she's resonated with with millions of, uh, of Americans. Yet, on the other hand, we have to have a, a radical vision of the world the way it should be. And we need to be thinking about like how many of the structures of, of oppression and exploitation around us like seem so natural today. But if things go right in 100 years and maybe less, maybe in 50 years, they'll seem so ridiculously absurd. Just like all forms of exploitation and, and brutality seem natural and now seem absurd. And we need to have be on both, both sides. And I think often the far left as a whole, you know, even myself, we all do this. We go from either capitulating to the present or just locking ourselves away and dreaming about the future. And I think the balance we're all trying to walk is how do we kind of do both and slowly pull, you know, the present into the future. Just quickly, because you've mentioned Michael Harrington twice, can you give a brief uh, just sort of <laughs> the case the case for Harrington uh, or, or not the case for Harrington, but the, what is worth keeping and what should be discarded of the legacy of Michael Harrington? Because certainly people who are in DSA, they would not be in this organization if it uh, had, had not been, you know, if Michael Harrington and, and his uh, generation hadn't sort of kept the torch burning uh, through some dark years. And I think a lot of people now associate his name with uh, what they would consider like right-wing social democratic right. ways of organizing that they should avoid, which is not totally wrong, but there's also much more to his legacy than that. So can you give the kind of the balance sheet of Harrington? Well, the good of Harrington was that he was an excellent writer and communicator. He was the best known socialist in the United States. And he uh, advocated for these ideas when it was very unpopular uh, to, to do so. Uh, he also spent a lot of his time building DSA. So he was of stature as a writer and as a public figure that he did not need to spend all this time making chapter visits and, and chairing meetings and, and whatever else that, that went into sustaining the infrastructure that kept DSA alive. So there would be no Democratic Socialist of America without Michael Harrington. So if you're a DSA member, then that should be enough to his, to his credit. The point that I would disagree with him is how he tried to put together his vision of change and that at the time that he was um, doing most of his organizing in the 1960s and 70s and 80s, there was still a, I guess you would call it a left wing of the Democratic Party, composed of some trade union bureaucracies and composed of a new wave of, of left wing Democratic elected officials, including a new wave of um, black um, mayors that first got elected in the 70s and, and 80s. And obviously we're, we're recording here in Chicago with where Harold Washington's campaign was the was the, the lightning rod of, of this. So in this condition, Harrington saw his main role as being a kingmaker in a coalition. A kingmaker makes it, make it, makes it sound like he was trying to get something out of it, but he was trying to wheel together coalitions of new, post-new left social movements, um, like feminist, ecological movements, and so on, left-wing Democratic elected officials, and trade union bureaucrats. He was trying to wheel, to get, wheel together a coalition that had fractured a bit, uh, during the new left. So the act, the social movement activists were very separate from the trade union officialdom. So to Harrington's credit, he wielded together these people again to the point that there was now consensus around things like, like a full employment bill and so on. Now, that attempt broke down and collapsed. I would argue that a lot of it was, was predetermined by trying to deal within the structure of the Democratic Party and so on. 
But this was also the era when every single left-wing project around the world, from Stalinist ones to social democratic ones, all collapsed. Um, this was, you know, the 1980s. So, um, so it's hard to say that that was the exact reason. Uh, so in other words, I, I think that realigning the Democratic Party consciously to the point that they become a social democratic or a people's party is basically impossible. Though obviously we need to run within the Democratic Party primary process to begin with. But we can't just prove it necessarily by the, by the oh, this failed again in the 80s because, you know, starting little Trotskyist groups failed and, uh, you know, uh, running uh, social democratic states in Europe failed and running, um, you know, autocratic socialist states failed too and all the same same era. So it might have been kind of overdetermined. So anyway, that's, that's Harrington's legacy. He failed, but the whole left failed. Um, but he at least knew to build this institution and left something behind. And the institution he built was quite healthy and, and democratic. So the talking point about democratic socialism that many of us have landed on recently has to do with democracy, with expanding it in the into the economic realm where it doesn't currently exist, with strengthening it in the democratic realm where it does exist to some degree, and also just arguing that you can't truly be free without having your animal needs met. That's this kind of basic argument of socialism, right? Um, but you are somebody who also believes in the traditional liberal political freedoms and that those freedoms and that that kind of democracy is, is crucial and socialists have to fight for and expand it. So what, what should the socialist agenda on these kind of basic uh, questions of political freedom look like? Well, I think there's a, there's a, there is a bedrock of uh, unalienable rights that any individual has. So your right to be a capitalist, your right to exploit others, that's not a right that, that, will exist under socialism. But your right to advocate for the restoration of capitalism in civil society, in, in the free press, you know, in, in assembly and so on, that's an unalienable right of as, as an individual that you have. Your right to free worship, your right to be free of certain state obligations, like conscientious objection from a, you know, an, an armed militia or whatever will happen to socialism. You know, that's those are those are individual um, rights. So I, I think we need to build off the the bedrock and build even off the bedrock of certain jurisprudence that we already have. You know, um, I, I don't exactly know, and I don't dabble in the book what a socialist jurisprudence would look like, but I imagine tests like the clear and present danger might be a good test to like what what speech do we allow, what what speech don't we allow? But uh, we we're not kind of we're not starting from from scratch. But I think the main problematic of socialism is actually freedom. You know, it's not a question of trading freedom for equality, like a lot of liberals would pose the question of socialism. But in fact, it's asking a question of freedom for whom? So, like, if you're running a bodega or something, and I work at your bodega, I'm from New York, that's the only uh, private enterprise that I have to, you know, interact with on a daily basis. Um, You know, uh, and... You're uh, working me in 11-hour shifts, but new legislation is passed and enforced, so even in small businesses, you can only work eight, nine-hour shifts. Now, obviously, you as someone who's paying rent, who's maintaining kind of a place of business, who now has to hire a second shift or even a partial shift or whatever, you know, you're losing something. Some of your rights are being violated by not having to pay someone to work less the same amount of money. Now... Something else is being added to me and my coworkers, though, which is now we have the right to do whatever we want for two, three hours of our lives. And that's our goal. We want to diminish the freedom of the minority that runs things in, in, capital, in capital society, uh, who owns private property, 
We want to diminish their rights and we want to expropriate them. And we want to expand the freedom of the majority. But there are limits to how we violate this kind of freedom of the, the minority. We have to allow them um, certain basic civil, uh, civil rights and, and organizing. Um, just like today, we could start a party advocating for the restoration of uh, monarchy or something like that. You know, who would support it? Absolutely no one, even though the royal family is, is really scarily popular in this, in this country. Um, I was going to ask you what the Bhaskar Sankara socialist utopia looks like, but then I started thinking about it and I imagined like an expansion of like social settings where there's like basketball on TV at all. It would basically look like a, like a Buffalo Wild Wings, like (laughs) all over America. So I'm not sure I really want the answer to this question. Actually, that's what I did this morning. 11 a.m. I was at the airport on my way to Chicago and I was just chilling out, drinking Diet Coke and uh, Buffalo Wild Wings at the airport. (laughs) JFK Terminal 4. It's a good one. Yeah, I see. I know. Um, Yeah. It's just like, yeah, it's all, it's all Trini people working there too. Um, so, um, now, my vision of, of I, I don't believe in a utopia. I believe in, let's say, provisional utopias, right? And that I think that we need to guarantee the basics of, of, um, of our humanity. We need to solve our animal problems before we start solving our human problems. So we need housing, health care, education, all these other necessities of good life to allow people to reach their potential. So imagine, you know, a, a welfare state times two, and that's the bedrock of your society. More and more spheres of life are decommodified. Then I think you need to also address the problem of a lack of democracy and equity in the workplace. And that can be solved through worker-controlled firms. So even if you do have a market, and I think at least for the foreseeable future, some sort of market will be necessary in consumer goods, you have this competitive marketplace where firms grow and start and in which, yes, they, they can fail. Um, but cushioning in it is this bedrock of a non-alienating participatory kind of uh, welfare state uh, but life shouldn't also be an endless meeting so when it comes to the political sphere do we want really direct soviet democracy as our only form of democracy no probably not we want representative institutions and you could structure these representative in- institutions so they're less alienated and less bureaucratic i think that a portion of you know maybe one house comes from one more direct democratic thing and the other house is more representative. Maybe some of that representative branch is, is people pulled from the general population by lottery. There's different ways in which you could structure it. But I think people also want don't want a 100% politicized live at all time. They want freedom from some degree of politics. But broadly, I just believe in the overarching principle of diminishing as much as possible hierarchy and eliminating exploitation. So exploitation in the capitalist workplace, the domination that's involved in having to basically trade your your ability to labor for cash. Um, you know that that tyranny and the, the that relationship. I think we we can we can uh, uh, eliminate. We can wage a much longer battle against against oppression, against racism, against sexism, against um, all sorts of other other oppressions. But then on the other hand, we have to ask: Are there certain things that are not ideal in the abstract, but might be necessary. So, for example, when it comes to hierarchy, okay, now even if you're in a worker-controlled firm, maybe you might need to delegate certain things, and maybe that means creation of bureaucracies and creation of managements. Now, if that's true, then how do we make these hierarchies democratically accountable? 
how do we, in other words, you're in a society where you're testing whether these things are necessary. And to the extent they're necessary, you're trying to make them as transparent and democratic as possible. You know, if you have a kid and your kid is nine years old, you should, as a parent, have authority over your, your child. That's normal. That's the only way a society could could function if people who aren't full adults, you know, uh, don't have the full rights as, as adults. But it's a very carefully checked control. You can't beat your child. You can't keep them from going to school. So I think in the same way in a society, even if we accept certain forms of hierarchy, and obviously the, the relationship between a parent and a child is an extreme example, you know, we... Um, figure out how to diminish it, how to make it as accountable as possible. But, you know, that's it. And then society's fluid. There'll be parties advocating for more planning and, and for less markets. There'll be parties advocating for even a restoration of capitalism, I'm sure. Maybe there'll be small parties. Um, though, again, there's no monarchists around, as far as I could tell. Um, so, you know, it's not the end goal. It's not, it's not we're finally here. It's, it's a process. But we've gotten rid of this point of uh, class, not just class exploitation, but the goal is to get rid of class, right? Because even saying we we're, we want a worker state, that's not a good thing because that implies there's still a working class. Working class isn't something to valorize. To be working class is to be exploited. And if we want to eliminate exploitations, we want to eliminate workers just as we eliminate capitalists, though not by killing people, just to clarify, no killing Except you're, you're maybe, first, except maybe like a thousand people at the top. You know, <laughs> everybody, every DSA chapter gets to name five people. <laughs> That's it. Wait, but so before we end it, you just mentioned a couple interesting things in there. I think one thing that a lot of people might be curious about is that you said that there should still be opportunities for businesses to fail. For example, firms, 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 yeah. firms to fail. Excuse me. Why is that an important thing to maintain? Well, so let's say if, if uh, I mean, it, it just it's a it's a way to um, to allocate scarce resources. Right. Otherwise, if you had a, a mandate to keep every single firm operational, then you'd be throwing raw materials potentially at firms that was that weren't using them efficiently. They weren't allocating its uh, firms efficiently, uh, its resources efficiently. You'd be keeping around firms with very ineffective labor techniques um, and so on. So, for example, in a society where there were even worker-controlled firms, but there were no set minimum wages, so obviously workers won't tr really get wages, they'll get a share of, of production. But let's say if you didn't have any minimum wage scales, then you might have some firms where there's a charismatic management that's elected that's telling people we have to work harder to maintain our market share, otherwise we won't have jobs. And firms that are doing things in very labor-intensive ways are, are sticking around and competing with firms that are have fully automated, you know, relaxed workers, right? So, um, so yeah, I think the key of, of making socialism work is, in fact, allowing inefficient ways of doing things to go away and rewarding new innovations. So that's still an, an argument for some kind of competition on a marketplace of some sort. Yeah, yeah, you just have competition for certain consumer goods, and you don't have competition for, for any other things. So the, so the commanding heights of the economy are nationalized, democratically nationalized. There's still wide scope for planning at, at all levels. but um, And failure doesn't mean absolute catastrophe for everyone. Yeah, involved. exactly. Failure just means I was working here, but now I'm chilling on the welfare state. And, uh, you know, if I want to find a new job, then I'm going to reenter the workplace in a growing sector, not a declining sector. And, you know, for us as socialists, I think it is important 
uh, especially our part of the socialist left, to remember that our goal is not just to give workers voice, it's also to give workers exit. So I have certain issues with UBI and its political viability as a demand and universal other issues. Universal basic income. Universal basic income. But I think the general spirit of people asking for it is correct, which is not just voice, but also exit from the uh, from the workforce. So being able to go to that Buffalo Say, Wild Wings and watch the Knicks lose yet another yeah, basketball Yeah, yeah, exactly. Game. Exactly, yeah. And, and I think, though, our vision of a good society has to be something that people can uh, can imagine, right? It, it can't. It, it has to be somewhat a few steps, obviously, to the left of where, where they are now. But it can't just be, um, oh, under socialism, it'll be good because it'll be under socialism. You know, because actually, in fact, if you look at some of these attempts, if you look at Yugoslavia in the 1970s, if you look at even East Germany and the Soviet Union in the 80s, you would actually be surprised because you would find a bunch of diligent, hardworking people, bureaucrats, managers, and workers that all earnestly believed in the construction of socialism. Like, you know, like, that's just true. And Trotsky's democratic socialists, like, don't want to admit it. But in fact, it is true, and they failed in many ways miserably, right? If you look at the experience of social democracy, you'll see earnest, hardworking workers and other people who believed in the construction of a system that also had its own failure and counteroffensive in the 70s and 80s. Uh, good intentions aren't aren't enough. I think we have to understand and learn from the the failures, instead of just waving them off in political terms. So this uh, it's almost like if you ever debated with a a um, a libertarian, you really have them cornered, and they say, "Oh, you're not talking about capitalism, though. You're talking about crony capitalism." It's you know it, I think socialists do that same trick. You're not talking about real socialism. You're just talking about actually existing socialism or whatever. So I think we actually need to to learn from these as honest attempts to institute planning that had some degrees of success, but also massive uh, failures. Um, for me, though, um, this is the way Jonah Birch and I kind of put it in, in, in a chat, uh, a, a talk we did a couple years ago, Jonah Birch, Jacqueline contributing editor, where we want a left that can learn from 1976 Sweden and 1917 uh, Russia. I would also add like 1958 Yugoslavia or, you know, all these other things, even if it's obviously not something we will lead with with the public. But I, I think it's very, um, you know, it, it's important to to take all these examples and, and to understand them. And that's something, you know, it's it's not a book of history, but in the book I try to do an illustrative, uh, pretty comprehensive uh, way. So I want people to not only read it, but also, you know, I put a lot of footnotes and stuff in there just like, Follow the the breadcrumbs if you're if you're curious about about any one paragraph or aside there. All right, well, Bosker, thanks a lot. Cool, thanks for having. Thanks to Bhaskar Sankara again. His new book is called The Socialist Manifesto: The Case for Radical Politics in an Era of Extreme Inequality. The vast majority is produced by Sarah Hurd at Studio Ten in Chicago. You can subscribe to The Vast Majority and to all the Jacobin Radio podcasts on iTunes or Stitcher. And you can always read us at jacobinmag.com.